following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. You're on Community Radio 2 X 98.3 FM. You're listening to Scotty. We're joined by Zena. And and today, today we are going to be... Well, let's back announce that song. That's a brand new song. It's a, it's a permaculture song, like all of the permaculture songs that are brought out by the Wallay, the only, the one and only, formidable vegetable sound system, Australia, and so far as I know, the world's only permaculture band. They are great. Fantastic. So that's their new song, Climate Movement. Um, so imagination, the daydream, the invention, is it's the new way of seeing the world. Staring out the window when you're supposed to be working. Now, we might sort of say a bit derogatorily that things are only in our imagination. Nothing humans create gets done without the imagination. We have to imagine something before we can build it or even talk about it. If it's already been imagined and accepted by society, an idea or an institution might seem like reality, but it is truthfully just an idea we all agree to hold in common. Many of these commonly held ideas are propelling us towards disaster on multiple fronts. Fortunately, we're beings who are capable of changing our minds, although we're not particularly fond of the practice, and this means that we can see where we're heading. It also means we can imagine something else, something much better. Then we can imagine how we can build the pathway from here to there, which is lucky because that's exactly what's required in our situation of looming crisis. Our time of imagination's gone wildly awry, so today I want to fire up the old imagination and we're going to imagine that we're having a yarn with David Holmgren, the, the founder of permaculture, and, and we're going to see what we can cook up for the, for the future. Now, hmm, can everybody hear my imagination out there? David, are you there? Well, yes, Scotty. Oh, look at that, it worked. That's fantastic. How are you, David? Uh, good, and uh, what an incredible introduction with um, uh, Charlie McGee's uh, phenomenal uh, words and music of uh, formidable vegetable uh, <laughs> to proceed. Yeah, yeah, it's a great new song, isn't it? Uh, we're actually going to be at the the, uh, the virtual launch um, uh, this Saturday, uh, an event that people can book in for free on Eventbrite, but it's actually in the tea house on Meliodora, our property where uh, Charlie McGee uh, lives as part of our extended uh, household uh, here of three semi-autonomous households. <laughs> ah, right, I didn't know Charlie was out there. That's uh, that's pretty funny. He would have had to extend the carport, I suppose. <laughs> uh, no, well, uh, there's um, some quite complex... Um, uh, interactions there, but we've been uh, supporters of, of Charlie from the very early days. The music, I, I think, he is actually one of the most significant uh, communicators and educators of permaculture around the world uh, through uh, through his words and uh, the incredible uh, music. And um, you know, it is, of course, part of that subject of what you're talking about of imagination of how we sort of creatively extend from what we just are absorbing around us automatically to being able to uh, imagine other possibilities 
Mm, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I should just explain the comment I made before that uh, Charlie drives around the the, uh, the countryside touring in a, a big red fire engine that's, that's powered by vegetable oil. So uh, parking a big fire engine in your traditional garage just isn't going to work. <laughs> Not that you guys would waste your garage space on cars, but... Uh, uh, yeah. No, the... Uh a big red bev is uh, parked and is um, uh, Charlie's uh, studio, recording studio, um, <laughs> as the uh, tea house where he lives is um, uh, is quite a small space. Yeah, not equipped as a studio. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell us about uh, where you're talking from. Well, where is Meliodora? Um, so Meliodora is. Uh, on the edge of Hepburn Springs in central Victoria in the heart of the, the Mineral Springs district on the, on the Great Divide. Uh, cool uh, climate. Um, uh, and we've been here for 35 years as uh, our home and permaculture demonstration site. Um, uh, receiving visitors and tours uh, permaculture design courses over uh, nearly 30 years and it's the home office for Meliodora Publishing, Holmgren Design um, and had collaborations with uh, other permaculture activists and enterprises here including uh, the Milkwood permaculture folks who were here for three years and uh, Brenna Quinlan, the illustrator of uh, our incredible book Retro Suburbia and of course Charlie McGee, you know, amongst many other people who've contributed uh, to this place and, you know, we uh, sort of work in the gardens together and, you know, produce our food and, you know, live in passive solar buildings that all reflect permaculture principles because from the early days of the extension of permaculture in the in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, my feeling was that sometimes there was a bit uh, of a high talk to do ratio in the in the permaculture <laughs> movement about you know saying what we should do and saying what could be done um, rather than actually just doing it. And uh, you know, I think it was very important from my point of view as the co-originator of permaculture to not just uh, walk the talk but actually to demonstrate how you know uh, we can live a better life now which is of course also a part of how society imagines other possibilities because until people sort of see something with their own eyes and can actually sort of connect to the story of you know actually living in some different way and it's very hard to sort of project that into the wider uh, society, let alone policy, and say, oh, we should do things that are, ha- actually haven't been done before. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's a very difficult space. Now, experience can teach us things that just can't be taught any other way, I've found. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. also, it is literally not many people can imagine things uh very differently uh, that we are in a lot of ways a product of our upbringing and 
culture and the enormous number of self-reinforcing factors around us in the uh, physical environment and the media um, environment that says this is the way it is. And to some extent, even though we are historically literate, this is the way it has always been. And of course, part of my explorations of that subject have have really been through my uh, Aussie Street story, Mm. which I've been telling for over a decade, uh, which is you know, it's sort of like a, a permaculture soap opera in four acts from uh, 1955 to 2025, uh, which incidentally, 2025 is the second Great Depression, which <laughs> in my story starts in 2020. So my crystal ball was pretty good on, yeah. on, on that score. So there we go. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that story, you know, we're actually reviving an understanding of how recent within our own uh, sort of uh, living memory of older people, which I'm now <laughs> one of those officially, um, that uh, a lot of very different ways of living. So rather than, um, you know, that just to connect to even our own recent history will show us very different ways of of living. And ironically, uh, that is often not taken seriously. And I think that's actually uh, one of the easy ways to blend that with the sort of over-the-horizon, visionary sort of conceptualising the completely new, which is also, you know, uh, very difficult. And the the possibility that through that imagination of imagining the recent past and what was that like and imagining possible futures um, and what can change through the way we view things and which is ultimately about changing the world through changing yourself of how you see things, how you experience things. Um, and of course, that's a that's a really big lesson in relation to the the hard, energetic, and environmental uh, limits to growth that human civilization is facing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a story that George Monbiot tells of. They're digging up places in London and they're finding rhinoceroses and hippos and all of these sorts of things we associate with Africa. And he, tell, he goes on to say that, that the, a lot of the conservation groups in England uh, are conserving something that's only one or two generations back and it's actually highly degraded from centuries of sheep and all of this other stuff. And It's, <laughs> it's not looking at what it was further back. Uh, before a lot of human influence, which is uh, an interesting sort of omission there, a lack of imagination. Well, yes, deep time, it's very difficult for us to actually uh, engage with those sort of things, but that is part of the wisdom that actually Indigenous cultures understood uh, in the the formative uh, landscape, formative myths of uh, Aboriginal people that we would see as just anthropomorphic stories, there's often a relatively good connect to what we would call 
geomorphic and geological history of the landscape, but it's folded into a, a current story of formation. And sometimes we would identify some of those events as being, oh, yeah, that's something that happened, we believe, 10,000 years ago. That's something that happened 10 million years ago. And that's something that happened 100 million years ago, all in one story, because mm. in a sense, all of those things that form that landscape are still there. And that way of seeing things is that, you know, that it's all part of uh, the present is in some ways uh, uh, a, more, a stronger way that humans can connect to all of those, if you like, past possibilities or, or things that not just were there, but are still in some way influencing or shaping a place. Yeah, I like the word every when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this time and everything, we, we, let's have a look at what we're actually working with because I've got this theory that the imagination needs a bit of tucker, it needs feeding. And, and the more sort of, the more we put in there really, the more we're going to get out. And that's, yeah, one of the reasons why today's media is a bit stultifying and imagination killing because it's all the same thing over and over and it's, it's not very positive really. But let's have a look at nature. We'll start with what we've got in nature. What... Uh, We'll skip the mineral bit, you know. We know there's a whole lot of different rocks and things we could spend forever there. What about life? Tell me about life itself. Well, I think uh, the there's a lot, obviously, we can learn from, you know, the formal understandings that, you know, starts with sort of high school biology. But the real... Um, exploration and imagining of life starts as little kids crawling about, well actually a toddler sort of crawling about close to the ground and exploring that micro world often with eyesight that can focus down to uh, a few centimetres. <laughs> I can remember uh, being annoyed with my son at a very young age who poked something right in my face and say, have a look at this, Dad. <laughs> Reel back. You know, so those micro worlds, the ability to actually go in and explore uh, and have a sense of things at all different scales in nature. Um, and that's, of course, imagination uh, that develops from that and stories and explanations and the incredible creativity that the children naturally have inherent uh, to us and inherent to our survival. Uh, it is both the development of practical uh, skill and knowledge and comfort in one's uh, lived environment, including mortal threats, uh, and it's actually part of the, the creative juices that develop um, imagination, empathetic connection with other life forms, uh, all of those resources. And ironically, uh, children over recent generations, and you could say it's been accelerating, uh, have actually been deprived of a lot of that. And so we've had to have remedial forms of substitution for that, such as environmental education, which some of which is sort of giving kids the benefits of sort of 
some current scientific understandings, but most of it's just remedial for what, uh, when I was a child, used to happen completely uh, naturally and without the mediation of adult intervention, understanding and ideologies coming in because kids initially are sort of free of that. They can make their own explorations and therefore their own imagination and and I think that is uh, yeah very important where we find what uh, life is about and that includes some of the hard brutal things too you know I can remember pulling the legs and wings off flies <laughs> and you know uh, playing you know the evil god <laughs> to uh, such creatures and I think it's even through those processes that progressively, you know, we learn that uh, empathetic connection and trying to imagine what that's like. What is it like to be a fly? Um, or, you know, you can say, well, that's impossible for us to comprehend, but it, it's the, the, the processes of imagination that, that um, build those connections that, you know, are essential to ecological literacy and uh, and the development of um, ethics and um, responsibility for the world around us. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. So how long do you reckon life has been around? What, what's the scientific word on this one? It's Well, of course, again, I, you know, <laughs> the we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, thousands of millions of years, which sort of makes billions of years in the in the sort of early stages. But the distinction between life and the non-living Earth has progressively been broken down, mostly through the work of um, uh, James Lovelock on the Gaia hypothesis. But my intellectual mentor at a distance, Howard Odom, the great systems ecologist parallel to um, James Lovelock was showing how the Earth is actually an interconnected, self-organised um, system that involved the biology, the climate and the tectonic sphere, all of the cycling of the continents, the rise of mountains, the subduction under the continental plates, that it was actually one self-organising system and it functions as if it is a living organism. Now, the thing is, all of our indigenous ancient traditions all teach us that and it's usually, um, you know, called Mother Earth. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that it's um, it, across most cultures that is the... Um, the gender that's put to that, and that's often balanced by a notion of uh, some sort of celestial father sky or or sun sky. And it's interesting that from a scientific point of view, we say this self-organising thing, uh, if we say that's alive or just the, it's the environment in which life lives, is powered by an external source the sun and without the sun this is just a, a dead 
planet. Well, that's really interesting because the way indigenous peoples talk about that it, it almost always is that the the life force is coming, yes, from the sun, but equally from the earth itself. And how do we relate to that in a scientific sense? Well, yeah, there's a bit of... <laughs> There's a bit of energy that sustains the system. It's coming from uh, the tectonic uh, uplift plates, which is the old radioactive decay in the centre of the Earth driving that, that heat process. But conventionally, scientists would say, oh, yeah, but that's like 0.01%. But analysed from the sort of methodologies that Howard Odom developed... He recognised that that energy is in fact a much higher quality energy and when accounted for in terms of real power, the energy from below is equal to the energy from the sun. Mm. So that means that the actual indigenous view of this balance, which is given as a gender balance, sort of father sky, mother earth, is actually scientifically true but we've been too dumb to understand that (laughs) (laughs) surprising isn't it (laughs) and you know just to give an example of my own understandings of that when i went from the early days of permaculture a lot of my knowledge about land had been developed in tasmania in a cool climate i went to new zealand the south island new zealand exactly the same latitude and I couldn't believe it, how completely different those places were. <laughs> New Zealand felt like nature on steroids. You know, everything about it, everything about my understandings just changed. And what was the difference? It's a geologically young landscape that has actually the fastest rising mountains in the world. And that energy from below in New Zealand is gigantic, whereas the energy from below in Australia is very muted, subdued, and it expresses itself in the way life works and how abundant uh, the landscape is, right through to things like the enormous um, energy generation of hydropower, of fresh glacial-fed rivers, all those things that Australia doesn't uh, doesn't have. Um, so, you know, I saw very clearly that that analysis using that what's called energy methodology and that uh, indigenous view was was true <laughs> yeah yeah it's got a lot of sense to it definitely definitely so we've got uh, got this amazing thing this life it's been around i don't know west jackson says 3.6 billion years you know there's all these different estimates but it really doesn't matter it's bloody old um, and you've got the external energy coming in from the sun. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about some of the energy flows in nature because permaculture is really focused on on the energy flows and how we can use them. Yeah, well, I suppose we've been living, of course, from the stored uh, surplus energy accumulation of plants um, and algae in the oceans of a special period of incredible biological productivity, uh, mostly of about 100 million years, and we've burnt it mostly in about 200 years or so in the form of fossil fuel. 
And that's given us such a huge distorted view of what's normal. Uh, we, hum, humanity's never before had access to energy of that concentration and power and availability. And that's why we built all the systems we did. Ironically, it, of course, it required that we had the imagination uh, at the institutional and cultural levels of complexity to be able to organise to do that. And that in itself is a very important uh, part of our history, our ecological history of how initially European civilization got that organisational complexity to be able to take what previously was like a poor substitute for wood <laughs> that was used where, you know, where as fuel where people didn't have enough wood, uh, such as in parts of Britain along the coast, they would use coal for, for fuel, to being this enormous uh, form of... Uh, of power and a lot of permaculture is about how we navigate the return to working on uh, the incoming energy which comes each year from the sun and then is expressed through the, the life on the planet so in a, a sort of a financial sense it's shifting from running on capital uh, to running on income mm. and uh, you know that process of where we are, what's coming in. So we end up with principles like catch and store energy. And by energy, we really mean all useful resources. And that storage of things, um, and primarily of energy, whether it's in passive solar house or whether it's bottling the, the seasonal surplus of um, autumn fruits, uh, for use over uh, winter and spring, we are catching something which is surplus at a certain point and then using it later. And hey, presto, as we sort of move to renewable energies like solar and wind, we have to deal with the fact that it's intermittent, um, that may be a call according to a pattern, um, or completely erratic, and we need to flexibly respond to that and we need to have storage. Oh, that, that's different, isn't it? So the house I'm sitting in has storage in the form of thermal mass of masonry walls and floor, and it captures the solar energy through north glazing. Uh, but when I look out there today, it's completely cloudy, and it's uh, five degrees outside. So I'm sitting in here with no heating, because the house has caught and stored that energy from the previous uh, days of, of sun. So that type of thinking that shifts us back to, uh, in a lot of ways, understanding that our forebears had as just common sense, but allows us to do it in new ways that our forebears didn't necessarily have, and that the difference there in passive solar is industrially produced cheap glass. <laughs> you know, and that makes possible that we could, in climates like southern Australia, have buildings that are largely heat and cool themselves just from the sun. But it doesn't happen through 
you know, the flick of a switch. It's a different type of um, process. So that requires us also to change our behaviour. And, you know, my partner Sue says, well, passive solar but active humans. You know, you need to <laughs> open the blinds at the right time and do all the things that you should do in any ordinary house, but you actually have to do it in a passive solar house for it to work. So that process of catching and storing energy or, you know, picking the fruit at the right time and getting it um, processed, a lot of people who've come from a culture of, um, you know, going to the supermarket each week to get that week's food are a bit shocked when they experience, oh, a fruit tree laden with fruit and then, oh, a week later, um, you know, the birds have got half of, of it or, um, you know, oh, it, it went rotten. They're all sitting <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so that um, that working in those patterns with energy and resources that are normal. And that brings us, you know, directly back to the, you know, the response or experience of the, uh, the pandemic lockdown. Um, you know, for us, we've always had stored food. It's the management of the seasonal cycle and the buying in bulk grains directly from the farmer. So, you know, we never participate in uh, being in moles or bullies. I mean, we regard that as part of our, you know, strike against unjust and destructive systems. Um, so, you know, for us, the uh, sort of pandemic has been, in a lot of ways, a bit of a non-issue because we live a home-based lifestyle anyway and we have those storages, we have those insurance systems, the sort of insurance systems that the whole of society should structurally have, but that we got rid of with the ideology from the uh, Thatcherite Reaganite revolution in the 80s of just-in-time manufacturing, where you don't keep storages of anything. It's good, isn't it? And then we can apply that to the whole food system. Yeah, so that pursuit of industrial centralised efficiency, you could say, is part of a lack of imagination of people who've, you know, grown up completely disconnected from nature, been relatively smart at school, gone straight to university, gone straight through MBAs and into corporations and into the economic system and say, oh, why do we need all these uh, warehouses and things stored there? Why don't we just get rid of all that and take it straight from the supplier, straight into the manufacturing line and straight out to the consumer, much more efficient? Well, I guess what you're saying with that progression of people <laughs> is that they're they haven't had that exposure to nature to work outside of the imagination and they've lived their whole lives within purely imaginary worlds, I guess. Well, um, worlds that can be artificially constructed to sort of reinforce completely illusory and unsustainable uh, ways of doing things. But pursuing efficiency within that as efficiency being a god Unfortunately, efficiency is on a, um, a, a balance, a tension with resilience because with resilience, you need to have backup systems. You need to have multiple ways of doing things. You need diversity. You need to value 
the edges and the margins, not just be focused on the, the main game in the centre. You need to creatively respond to change. You need to have integrated rather than segregated systems. You need to work from patterns to details. Uh, whereas, in a way, is of the t- <laughs> obviously I'm listing you know some of the twelve permaculture design principles. In a way, you could say that extreme economic, rational, efficiency drive is just a very narrow application of the one permaculture principle, produce no waste. That within the paradigm of, you know, the company or the nation's economy as limitedly constructed, it's, you know, obsessing over how do we do it in the most efficient way, measured in a very narrow way. And whereas in permaculture, we're always balancing all of these different, sometimes apparently opposing needs. For example, you know, catch and store energy and obtain a yield are power principles that show how the system gets more resources and uses it effectively to be stable and grow, whereas that's balanced by principles like uh, diversity, that you don't put all your eggs in one basket and you have to uh, recognise all the complex interconnections uh, of things. So the tension between all of those is is how we uh, start to remind ourselves of all the, you know, what there is to uh, consider. And rebuilding that uh, lost common sense and understanding it in a new way applicable to the world we're in is that a lot of what permaculture thinking is trying to do behind all the, you know, the practical uh, solutions that people associate with permaculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. So needs is another thing that permaculture is really one of the base concepts, I guess, of permaculture. What, what are our basic needs and, and how does... Do you, yeah, give us an outline of Maslow's ideas if you agree with them. <laughs> Tell us why you don't if you don't. Yeah, well, it's uh, a lot of basic needs uh, like food and uh, shelter and uh, feelings of security and love and, and reciprocity. Um, uh, there's lots of different things that we can see are needs, but from a permaculture point of view, we'd also there's a category that we call call wants, and beyond that, there's a a further category that we could call addiction, where there's a very strong driving force to supply those, but it actually is destructive to the entity or the system that it's actually uh, feeding. Um, And Obviously, the crossover between those three is, you know, very much a grey area and is socially constructed and and very different according to the, um, you know, uh, individual perception and society's perception. Um, so, for example, a lot of people in our society would say that a hot shower is is definitely uh, an essential need. Uh, well, my partner Sue Dennett washes under cold water at an outside tap and um, she thinks that's um, very fine and nice and actually 
better than a hot shower, but a hot shower is really destructive to her skin and um, let alone a hot shower in chlorine water, which <laughs> is disgusting. Uh, so, you know, the the whole notion of uh, needs and wants is, is obviously a tricky one, but um, when we look at it and understand our sort of biological needs, we can see how food is not just something that we need pretty much every day, but it's actually very, very complex in some ways in its provision. We've got to do it every year. You know, the season rolls around and we've got to grow food again. Um, and we have to deal with the ups and downs of nature. Whereas if you look at, say, shelter, well, we've got more buildings in Australia than we could possibly need for 50 million people. You know, so as important as ecological architecture and building is to uh, permaculture, and of course I was just talking about passive solar design, that we should be building buildings that are passive solar, the reality is we've got enough buildings. And we, whereas food is like really, really fundamental, but because food is so cheap relative to people's wages and is such, at such a distance from people and has been so reliably available in the centralised supply system, or at least a version um, that is called uh, good food. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say that it actually is. Uh, you know, that a lot of these things are taken for granted. And I think it's interesting that when we ran these workshops in early permaculture design courses of brainstorming needs and wants, often people would forget um, clothing because clothing, again, relative to people's wages, had become the cheapest thing that the industrial world had really ever managed to produce. Mm, it's a very and important it's part of shelter. And abund it? abundance that, you know, for my generation of environmentalists, as we first, you know, left behind our sort of middle-class upbringing and just got all our clothes at the op shop for virtually no cost. You know, it's a bizarre world that um, we could close down the world's clothing industry um, and in rich countries like Australia, we wouldn't be have a shortage of clothes for maybe 10 years. There might be a shortage of work overalls or things to wear out. <laughs> but, you know, we wouldn't need any production for possibly two decades. It would be sort of funny seeing all the tradies out in their evening gear working away. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the, the, the growing of food and this storage of energy, that, that sort of relates directly to our concept of wealth, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, well, the idea of, you know, the big stack of firewood drying in the, in the sun as a traditional symbol of wealth, or in fact, when in the east of France, where we were there in 94, these large piles of manure outside the barns were a symbol of how many cows the farmer had in that barn. And, and that was actually a, a traditional symbol of wealth. How big was the shit pile? Uh, you know, and, you know, of course, we have those things in our society, but they're so removed and at literally physically removed, like, you know, the 
onshore LNG uh, processing plant that uh, I saw um, when we travelled around Australia in 99 in the northwest of Western Australia and it almost made my knees buckle just the scale of, you know, those, um, those forms of wealth extraction that everyday mundane life depends on that people just sort of shrug and take that for granted. So I used to teach in the 90s on permaculture design courses in Victoria, a course down here that the biggest coal-fired power station that modern people should get up and pray to Lor Yang each morning, <laughs> you know, in a sort of a, uh, a parody of uh, praying to Mecca, of recognising, like, where what we needed came from. Not that that was to sort of emphasise how good fossil fuels are, but it's part of a, of a being able to imagine and understand what actually literally sustains you. And that to go beyond that, to, to redesign that, to move beyond it, as obviously uh, we should have been doing decades ago, you need to understand what it currently is, not in some sense of being spoiled brat. Oh, no, I don't like that now. It doesn't, it doesn't do what we want. Uh, I'm throwing that away and I'm going to, you know, um, demand something else. Mm. I don't think that's imagination. I think the imagination comes in from imagining into what actually is being able to, in your mind, see that huge power that is sustaining you and imagine it in your head. And ironically... We say, oh, yeah, we know that, and there's engineers who work down there, and I can look up on the internet and see a photo. Well, can you actually grasp the scale of what that is and to sort of feel that in, in, in that sense? And most of us just ignore those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that's where a lot of the environmental evil in the world comes from, that, uh, you know, we can ignore the children mining the rare earths in the Congo that are, are in our uh, mobile phones or uh, a million other things because we, you know, um, uh, can't imagine or empathetically connect with uh, those things that sustain us. So that real awareness of what is, is ironically both uh, a hard realism but it also requires imagination because it's not actually part of your lived human scale experience. Which is funny. I see the both our food systems and the air we breathe and, and even the massive natural gas things there. We do have to imagine them just to work with them, but the, the thing that the imagination's really done is, is taken that that real physical, natural wealth, the real wealth of the world, and it's turned it into imaginary wealth and converted uh, yes. it into, into money. And yes, well, this is... I, I wrote an essay called uh, Oil Versus Money, uh, B- Battle for Control of the World, and I suggested there were these two sides of um, modern industrial capitalism that had mostly worked um, uh, as a team, 
Um, but there were two sort of really opposite views of how the world worked. One was the view that uh, wealth came from nature. And this is sort of a not much older view and even persisted, you know, with the feudal landlords. They sort of understood that their wealth wasn't really because they were so smart or cunning. It was how much good forest and farmland they controlled. They didn't necessarily know how the peasants grew food, but that didn't matter. But they understood their wealth came from the land. And then this more modern view that wealth comes from human creativity. And this arises especially with the mercantile classes in Europe, the business people, the city people, with a little bit more disconnection from nature. Um, and, of course, they didn't really understand that their uh, supercharged rise of wealth and the ideas of uh, the Enlightenment and early capitalism were themselves funded by wealth from uh, the Europeans making contact with uh, two continents where North and South America, where 90% of the population died of contact and allowed European civilization to power up based on extracting <laughs> the wealth from those places. And then that supercharged over into, into tapping uh, fossil fuel. So that urban wealth, um, really, which included uh, not just the business people, but also the diplomats who believed everything could be negotiated, um, uh, and even, you know, social justice and welfare advocates that, you know, that human creativity and how we think about things is the source of everything. And, of course, there's truth in both sides of that, and permaculture is very much a synergy of that hard, ecological, energetic realism with humans are amazingly plastic and creative and can reinvent ourselves. But in our society, the pinnacle of those two have become, firstly, the fossil fuel corporations and, to an extent, the military, who understand that power comes out of a hole in the ground. And, and, you know, the people who've got the guns with the ring around the hole in the ground, they are the source of, of uh, the gr nature in that non-living sense is the source of power. And then on the other side, you've got the bankers who are the masters of the magic of money, who believe they are the creators of wealth. And what's been playing out in the world through the climate policy stuff is the bankers sort of decided that they can still be the masters of the world and digest this idea that wealth no longer comes out of holes in the ground and can be from some sort of renewable source, but they will manage it through their mastery. So they accepted at Copenhagen uh, the climate idea and environmental and social justice, justice advocates immediately aligned themselves with the bankers, <laughs> um, whereas the the you know the Exxon Mobils and uh, countries like Russia um, saying no power comes out of a hole in the ground, they were the evil old people. <laughs> whereas I was saying both of these dinosaurs um, are, are very large, very powerful, and are now fighting each other, um, and we should avoid being stomped on <laughs> um, as they battle for that control because both of them are sort of 
structurally problematic. And that was before the um, uh, Occupy movement, uh, you know, uh, before that recognition of how much dysfunction there is through this imaginary economies of finance, which are now like a cancer eating away at the world. And it's just as problematic as the idea that we keep uh, digging out coal and oil out of the ground and dumping it uh, into the atmosphere. The, the financial systems are so sort of fundamentally flawed and a huge part of the uh, inability to imagine organising human affairs in a different way. And the interesting thing, of course, is that while the energetics of, of coal and wind are, you know, to some extent subject to human imagination, you know, and technology improvement. Um, there are hard thermodynamic limits to everything we do in the material world, whereas money is a figment of human imagination. It's a construct, and we can redesign it in completely different ways. Uh, it's not subject to the laws of physics, <laughs> but but you know constructing it in in ways that keep generating more and more of it will not change the laws of physics, and that's something that uh, is is a huge tension in the world at the moment because yeah most measures of wealth continue to fall back on this. Um, uh, you know, this creation of money, whereas money is only a measure or a, a right to access real uh, wealth. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, I think we've spent enough time looking at the problems. So we've, we've got all of this stuff set up, and around 1970-odd, there's, uh, you know, Thatcher's about to come on the scene with Reagan, and there's, there's some fella from... Oh, he's from Victoria, I think. He tra trips down to uh, trips down to Tasmania and runs into some bloke called Bill. What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, that is uh, a long story. But um, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, told that story in in, in various forms uh, on film and um, mm -hmm. uh, in, in written form. But in essence. Uh, Bill Mollison was as a, actually a senior tutor in the psychology faculty at the TAS University and I was a student in the environmental design school, um, a separate institution in Tasmania at the time and uh, I suppose the huge ferment of interest in environmental solutions was very strong at that time just following the Club of Rome Limits to Growth Report in 1972 and the first oil crisis in 1973. So all of the ideas that we would associate with modern sustainability were all being discussed at that time. And um, the, uh, for me, environmental design school was probably the most creative, radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history. And it gave me the freedom to explore and imagine things that uh, I wanted to work on. Um, there was no fixed curriculum. There was none of the normal constructs of academia. 
And when I met Mollison, I met him not through even knowing uh, sort of who he was or going to one of his lectures and not actually even interested in his position in the psychology faculty. It was the fact that I thought, ah, this person actually thinks ecologically because in my estimation, all the ecologists I'd met, I'd regarded as reductionists. <laughs> um, all the academically trained ones. And I thought, oh, this guy thinks ecologically. And that was just through casual discussions with him that led to a partnership and uh, a focus on how this crossover between my interest in ecology um, applied to agriculture and how the discipline of the design professions, you could say as a profession, landscape architecture, but just the design thinking could apply, take the principles of ecology and apply it to the redesign of agriculture. And uh, uh, Bill Green, being the great polymath he was, um, you know, that connected with things that he'd been thinking about. But in a in a political sense, it's important to recognise that Bill was um, part of the early environmental movement in Tasmania. In 1972, he was a candidate for the United Tasmania Group uh, to the Senate. Didn't get in. Uh, but that was actually recognised as the first modern Green Party in the world. Um, so when I met him, he'd had five years at the front lines of oppositional environmental activism, um, was becoming a bit disillusioned. And I grew, you know, I'd come from a, a childhood in a, a radical leftist family, you know, that uh, uh, walked in the band, the bomb marches <laughs> as a toddler and the anti-Vietnam uh, campaign sort of filled my childhood and teenage years. And I'd come to the view that this trying to stop the bad things in the world uh, was perhaps not as effective as why don't we just go out and create the world we do want, uh, live it now. And so Mollison and I came together, you know, a generation apart, and yet with that sort of common uh, sort of attitude that we're just going to create the world we do want. And so in that political sense, that's what permaculture was about. We're just going to actually do it because, A, it's a better way to live, better for us, but it's actually the way you bring something to reality through lived example and project that into the world rather than just the great heroic fight to stop bad things that are happening. Yeah, that's it. You've got to stop it, but you've also got to start it. Yes. So yeah. permaculture's wound up with three ethics, and I don't know how you managed to distill it quite so well, but... Uh, it's earth care, people care, and fair share, um, and a whole bunch of principles that sort of attend to those ethics. You got any favourites in there? Or? Well, a lot of. Well, the first thing to say is we see the principles uh, as, to some extent, unique to permaculture, although they build on traditional wisdom um, from many traditions as well as modern ecological thinking. The ethics are more clearly founded in the commonalities of all traditional uh, of place and especially um, indigenous first people. 
that there's some form of that, uh, you know, uh, care of earth, care of people and fair share. And, you know, those are simple words, but of course they're complex <laughs> uh, concepts in a way. But it is one of the things that distinguishes permaculture from uh, just scientific or design technique is that it's got to be connected back to uh, uh, an ethical foundation. Um, and so it, it can't um, be used correctly, divorced from that ethical uh, foundation. Uh, whereas there's a lot of aspects of science, of course, that, well, we can use it for for what um, some people would regard as the incredibly noble purposes, and we can use it for things that many people would regard as downright evil purposes. Uh, we would say permaculture cannot be used in that way um, because you can't just distill it down to a separated set of techniques or strategies that um, can be used without reference to those uh, uh, ethics. And while that, of course, also requires us to constantly reinterpret, well, what does that actually mean? And the point about those ethics, of course, is that they don't give you any clear answers to what is the right thing to do in any particular situation, but it, it requires you to, to think about uh, that and how that, how that works. And I guess that's part of their strength is that it creates a resilience across different scales and situations and, and, and environments and, and so that you can use these principles and ethics as a set to just look around and come up with what's more appropriate for what it is that you want to do. Yeah, because, look, the adoption and spread of permaculture has inevitably happened mostly um, as an understanding of cool techniques and strategies. You know, a lot of people in the early days thought permaculture was sheep mulching, you know, having big layers of organic matter to start a garden because it was one of the techniques that was popularised through permaculture. But, of course, from quite early on, early on, I was known for pointing out all the weaknesses or uh, limitations <laughs> of that technique and that any technique or any strategy even um, is appropriate it, where it's appropriate is limited by context and that context can be the natural environment uh, the cultural context uh, you know the timing uh, lots of different factors whereas we see the ethics and design principles are actually universal and so can be applied anywhere whether you live in an apartment or a on a thousand hectare grazing property, you know, whether you're in a village in India or you are part of uh, an upmarket arts community in New York. Uh, now, that is a big claim, <laughs> but the really the core of permaculture is those uh, ethics and design principles. But to apply those, inevitably, those are generalised and even abstract. So, you know, what does integrate rather than segregate actually mean and how do you apply it appropriately? Again, there's all those questions that you have to think of. And so to get from something as abstract as ethics and, and design principles, you have to be able to imagine, uh, uh, be able to project 
sometimes things that are not actually there for which you don't have examples. Uh, but we accept that in society generally people will follow something they see that they emotionally connect to and it looks like it works, ah, and I think that could work for me. That's fine, but the way we create, not just replicate what has already been done, but create genuinely uh, novel exploration requires imagination and, and the ability to use these tools of ethics and design principles to help guide that imagination in the right direction because our imagination uh, uh, with our cultural inheritance all sorts of Trojan horses like um, you know there's always a, t a more complex techno fix to every problem yeah that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years and what happens is you get more and more complexity and that creates more problems and you solve those problems with more complexity <laughs> until you are overwhelmed by complexity that collapses. And that's the analysis, of course. Of and stuck in a rut. I mean, you could look at the financial <laughs> system as a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, imagination just asking people to brainstorm things, inevitably they come with all of the cultural uh, baggage. So... Uh, Permaculture ethics and design principles help sort of guide us towards the imagination which is uh, going to be in some way helpful without knowing what actually the exact solution or even strategy is going to be. So there's that sort of huge uh, sort of freedom of expression. And I've often said to permaculture teachers and activists, part of our role is to look around and look at things that don't have a permaculture label on, might not even have the demeanour or social connection to what we think is permaculture, but we look at it through the permaculture ethics and design principles and say, yep, that's a really good, appropriate expression of that, so we can give that a permaculture koala stamp. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, that, that's part of it. requires imagination to do that, right? Saying, oh, yeah, this is a permaculture because it's got a herb spiral and <laughs> it's got some plants that we call permaculture. <laughs> totally, totally. Now, a bit over a decade ago, you started noticing that there's a, there's a terrible, awful lot of us sitting around in, in these little houses surrounding the urban areas and not, not quite in the country, but, you know, still with a decent amount of... Uh, of land about in, in, in suburbia. So what, what drew you to thinking about suburbia? Well, I suppose it was in the 90s as I started looking more closely at the onrushing limits to growth that had been so clearly documented back in the 70s and especially through depletion of resources, uh, oil and the onrushing the sort of climate crisis. And it was pretty clear that we would be adapting to that uh, emerging civilization change, challenging crisis, more or less with the living patterns and physical structures that we had. Because even when you've got rapidly growing economies, it takes 100 years or so for the building stock of a city to turn over and change. Um, so the, clearly the suburbs, which is where most Australians live and in countries like Australia, people are going to be living in those sort of places 
in some way or another, short of some sort of catastrophic, it's all going to be burnt down in some bushfire that actually does burn the whole continent. <laughs> uh, you know, so um, that means how do we creatively adapt or retrofit what we've already got is a more fundamental and important agenda than how do we design new greenfields, um, you know, eco uh, villages and uh, eco cities. So I guess you're taking what's evolved in our dense energy sort of world and, and adapting it to a, a solar energy budget. Yeah, and there was a lot of things that are actually very positive about suburbia in that sense. And I'd been on the record, you know, that's always been my view from the very early days of permaculture, that sustainable cities would be characterised by a re-ruralisation, partly through you know, migration of people out of mega cities to more modest-sized settlements, but also through a ruralisation of those city landscapes themselves. And that really means, actually, the, the suburban landscapes that can become uh, not farmland, again, in the sense of knocking down the houses, but the, the open spaces are part of agriculturally abundant, mostly through horticulture and small animal livestock husbandry can become enormously agriculturally productive and that the opportunities to do that in low-density suburbia uh, were great and were a counter to the conventional sort of planning and environmental view that these are, you know, car-dependent, uh, consumer, dysfunctional places, which, you know, that's been the orthodoxy in the planning profession and the environment um, movement and in sort of mainstream political discourse for decades. Not that it's sort of actually stopped the, the suburban sprawl, but it's, um, you know, uh, that view, uh, we take this opposite view that, gee, you know, separated houses, often you can find a wall that's facing you know, within 20 degrees of true north. So you can add a solar greenhouse on it and turn it into a passive solar house. You've got space around, but you've got a roof area that you can collect water from. You can grow food. You know, you've got walls and fences that act as trellis structures. You've often got a sheltered environment. You've got delivery of water from town water. You've got sometimes enough space to absorb uh, water and nutrients through uh, compost toilets and and reed beds, and you can start all that process at the household scale without waiting for society as a whole to decide that this is a good idea or absolutely necessary. Whereas if you live in an apartment block, there's a whole lot of other stakeholders that have not just got to be consulted, they've got to be on board for a lot of things to be done. And so as you move from the high density to lower density residential areas, households can t provide the lead by providing the examples ahead of the social licence and even the legal licence to do things. Yeah, and so, so, of course, sorry. you know, there's a lot of examples of that. And that's how you bring about positive change anyway. Like Verge Gardens didn't come about from people, you know, applying to the council and saying, can I plant something on the nature strip? Mm -hmm. They came about because people just did it. 
That's it. Easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, really, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. what that then develops from those examples is authorities go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, oh, there's really good examples, and oh, there's these few problems over here. Oh, here's some guidelines. And that's how, you know, processes become sort of normalised, but they start off by people just doing it. Yeah, And that's so it. that's doing small-scale things where you take responsibility for it you get the feedback also from neighbours because often that social licence is as important and sometimes as difficult to get as the legal licence. So mm. a lot of my work is encouraging that sort of um, action in the suburbs, which, of course, the Retro Suburbia book is full of that and we see that as a, a huge expanding um, largely hidden movement and I think it's been boosted enormously by the pandemic because huge numbers of people have found themselves isolated at home and going, my home situation is pretty dismal. Whereas other people have found, yeah, I've got all these things I can do. Uh, And so that different experience highlights the positives of this sort of home-based um, household and community non-monetary economy. Yeah, I reckon it really highlights to a lot of people too that, that they've not had any time for years and years and years. You know, they've, their dependence on money has really disconnected it from from <laughs> what really meets our needs and it's sort of been like a hydroponic humanity, you know. Mm-hmm. We're sort of, yeah, getting along in a sort of capitalist subsistence sort of form. Um, yeah, well, of course, a lot of that has been the, the twin drives of debt uh, created mostly by the uh, madness of um, property bubble, which is the product of the larger financial system uh, dynamics. And then the other one is, of course, the creation of needs, uh, uh, wants and addictions uh, of habits that are normalised that people feel they need to have to live uh uh, a, a good life um, and of course the the economy being shut down back to closer to an economy of basic needs has shown us how much of the economy is actually completely unnecessary and it's the economy that I often talk about of uh, in my presentations of uh, you know the cafes the gymnasia and the dog shampoo services you know what are all these buildings going to be used for when we move back to economy of basics that works within ecological limits? Uh, <laughs> you know, because um, our fitness can be easily got by just living a normal, productive life, um, you know, gardening and, uh, and getting around on bicycles and, and a million other things that all need to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, our uh, empathetic connection and relationship with, to animals which is um, important, uh, can be done in ways that are less dysfunctional than, um, uh, you know, going off, uh, taking our dog to the, you know, the professional shampoo uh, service. Yeah, so you <laughs> focused right in on the, on the household scale. What, uh, what attracted you to the household scale? It's sort of a scale that most people ignore. It's between yeah. individual and community. Well, yes, it's, and I think often, and especially in the environmental movement and in uh, a lot of the social justice movements, there's been a sort of focus on, very appropriately, on community scale. Um, 
and then on the right you you have this you know the autonomous individual the freedom to act in the marketplace and and everything and that sort of focus on the individual and that somehow the bit in the middle which we all live in households of some form which are the fundamental economic and social unit of society and I advisedly use the word household rather than family because it may be um, a traditional family or it may not or it may be some blend of um, you know people living together that are actually uh, related in a family sense and and other people that that household has actually shrunk on average to a really withered away often you know two or sometimes one person and there's not much can be done at the a household economy of one person except by being very frugal you know it's it's a bit like the one pot uh, meal you know why would you go to all the bother of of cooking when it's sort of one person uh, sometimes you have to simplify it to make it worthwhile whereas when you're cooking for four people or six people you know or 10 people which you can do in most kitchens no problem uh, you know the economies of scale are enormous and of course in the larger economy we have this mad pursuit of economies of scale of giant corporations you know um, out competing small businesses but ironically our households are too small to be economic and and who does that serve it serves the corporations who dominate the monetary economy because then we outsource all our what we need to doing it in the money economy but for us that's actually incredibly inefficient and it's no accident that our forebears did a whole lot of stuff at home and saved their money for the things that they couldn't do at home and that's the sort of balanced economy so I'm actually claiming that in my lifetime I was born in 1955 that 50% of the growth in GDP is completely fake and by that I don't mean that it's bads and disservices like legal litigation and car accidents which increase the transaction of money but are clearly not desirable. No, I mean that it's completely fake in that we simply moved economic transactions that were in the non-monetary household uh, economy and shunted it into the monetary economy and called it growth. So, for example, what am I talking about? When people stopped taking their lunch to work and started buying it. No more lunches were created, uh, but it was merely monetarised. The work was still being done productively in the household, and in fact, for that sort of function, a kitchen at home can do that job far more efficiently than a, you know, on-tap lunch supply place in running in our monetary economy. Mm. There's huge waste and inefficiency that are necessary in that sort of system because it's a business, because there's all health regulations. You know, you can't serve up what was there yesterday, and there's all this just-in-time demand. Oh, today I'll have this. Well, you know, you don't say that to your partner who's preparing (laughs) your lunch for you. You take what you get. (laughs) Or, you know, if you get it yourself, you get what's in the cupboard and in the fridge. You don't say, oh, for lunch I'll have this today. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, you know, I, so I see that as a continuation of, of. I mean, colonialism started with with whole communities running out of energy and needing to go next door to borrow some, and they sort yeah, of yeah. they didn't want to give it to them, so they whacked them on the head with a stick, and it rolled on from there. But um, <laughs> so you could think of that as, as an enclosure, I guess. And the enclosures in the in Scotland were when all the people got kicked off to grow sheep for the industrial revolution, and yeah, that well, was been fenced off and enclosed. But this like is a, a, a continuation enclosure moving back into the that non-monetary domain mm. of autonomy that, you know, even as I said, back when I grew up in the 50s, was just taken for granted. Mm. Now, unfortunately, progressive people have associated people bemoaning the loss of that as about resenting women going into the workforce and trying to maintain traditional family values and all sorts of things like that. And that's created a bit of a blind spot to the fact that we got conned into giving up, you know, that we have some internal control. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of issues about equity, about sharing in that economy, sharing the good bits and the bad bits. And that household economy has been reduced to, oh, it's just the drudgery of housework. Well, that's when it got simplified back to that's all it is. But when it was complex management of the seasonal food storage system, it involved a whole lot of complex decision-making skills, you know, um, processing seasonal produce, judging, you know, and fixing the house, you know, and fixing the car, you know. So there's lots of tasks that we could see were classically male-gendered tasks and, and ones that are female-gendered ones. But obviously that household economy, as we sort of, remembered in the past was dominated by women's traditional roles because they were the latter ones to be sort of sucked or invited into the monetary economy. So I've tried to sort of make it really clear that this is not about that return to the particular form of sort of gendered structure of the past, but that we are going to recreate the household and community non-monetary economies now because it's better for us and we know that this is actually how all people have survived through tough times anyway. The household size increases, people start sharing and that's already been happening. Good um, statistics in the US showing average household size has been going up since the GFC. Now, of course, this latest crisis will actually uh, make that even stronger. So many people have realised, oh shit, I'm by myself in this boring place, in this boring apartment, and even my key personal relationships are all with people who are, I'm not allowed to connect with. You know, what, what a dismal situation. Um, and of course, other people have found, oh, we're not very good at actually living together where we tolerate each other because we never are around in the same space oh you know so we need to deal with those problems as well of of how we relate so huge challenges but also huge opportunities and so many people discovering ah yeah getting the household um, economy cranking getting creative things to do with kids 
um, the experience of home education, all of these sorts of things. For a lot of people, they are not going to go back to that other world. And that is actually a threat to those centralised uh, economies. Um, and we, we very much see this as radical political action of distancing ourselves from systems that are destroying the planet and that are not to our economic, social, psychological well-being um, you know, advantage. So we're not going to do it. And surely we have that right to use our skill, our work, uh, what capital uh, we have uh, and our consumption to say, no, we're going we're gonna to apply that, that which is ours, in ways that we think is for our benefit, for the benefit of community and for the benefit of the planet. And that doesn't mean going back into that, uh, that supercharged debt uh, monetary economy. Of course, you know, most people are going to need some hybrid of that, but I see this huge um, explosion. I'll just give one little tiny example in our town. We had a, a sort of oh, micro... Dave, I might have to just cut you off there. And We're running get, out of time. Yeah, yeah. If people want to find out more about this, because you've written a, a, a cracker of a book about this... Yeah. Or retro suburbia, where, where people can learn what they actually can do. Um, how would they get hold of that? Uh, well, we now have that as uh, an online pay-what-you-feel access as a, uh, a digital book online, which is our response to the, uh, the pandemic after uh, the book is now in its third print run. Um, it's a beautiful big colour book that most people say I've got to have the book myself but there's also uh, an online access as part of the sharing economy uh, on a pay what you feel basis uh, so that's at retrosuburbia.com Yeah nice one, nice one, that's good really good actually um, yeah is there anything else you'd like to add in our last minute Yeah well I, you know I think uh, as I said, there's a whole um, lots of people uh, doing these things, and it's interesting the Retro Suburbia Facebook community, which was sort of growing uh, gradually up to 5,000 people, has accelerated enormously uh, since the pandemic and is now um, over 10,000 uh, people, I think, and huge exchange going on of both that sort of a lot of little practical things and also um, right up to, uh, you know, the some of the philosophical issues that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll leave it there. Uh, David Holmgren, thanks very much for joining us. And we, we skipped most of my notes there, really. So uh, there's so much to talk about. Um <laughs> I yeah. didn't even get a word in there, Scotty. Oh, no. <laughs> I was too, no, too happy I... to listen to David. It was <laughs> wonderful. Maybe I, I, I've been under lockdown a, a, <laughs> a bit longer. <laughs> That's all good. I got oh. up on my soapbox. We'll just have well, to get you back in in, in another uh, six months or so after lockdown's lifted and see what your thoughts are. Yeah, yeah. why yeah. not? Sounds good. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA. 
and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. CoCanberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.